you know, one of the ways of actually, I think, challenging yourself in a career is taking the opportunity or saying yes to opportunities that present themselves, even if you think, oh, my gosh, this, this is going to be impossible. Now, you don't want to set yourself up for failure. So I'm not saying that, you know, you should take wild changes. Hey, listeners, I'm James Schmidt, and I'm so excited for you to hear our newest episode. Renee Beth connected me with Lace Haynes, who is a retired psychologist who worked in a variety of different fields, such as clinical psychology, industrial psychology, and several more. I think you will enjoy our conversation about pursuing psychology as a career path. My favorite part of this podcast was when Lace shared the multitude of applications that a master's degree in psychology has. Hi there, this is Renee Beth Poindexter, and I'm the founder of Living the Potential Network. And I'm your host for this amazing podcast today. When I wrote the book, Living the Potential, Engaging the Wisdom of Our Youth to Save the World, I set out to find ways to create spaces where people could hear what the youth have to say. And that's what this podcast is all about. I love these conversations. We're listening to a youth's dreams and concerns. We connect them with a mentor, an elder, who has experience and wisdom to share and who is open to learning and receiving from the innovative spirit of the youth. It's reciprocal learning at its best. And I always leave these conversations um, inspired, and I think you will too. Today, I have two special guests. Um, one is Laith Haynes, and Laith is uh, an amazing psychologist who's had a very varied background, and he comes to us from the state of Pennsylvania. And he will be uh, interacting with James Schmidt, who is uh, an amazing young man who um, is, a, in is just heading into his second year or completing his second year of college in the field of psychology. So let's just get started um, with you, Leith. Um, should I call you Dr. Leith or just Leith? You can call me Leith, that's fine. Okay, okay. Yes. <laughs> but you've earned that you're a doctor and a doctor of psychology and you've spent your life you know, in, on this journey of learning about people and how to be of service to them. And this is just not your standard to say, you know, typical psychologist. You've had a wide and varied background. Could you share with us a little bit about your journey? Sure, I'd be glad to. Um, let's take it backwards because for the last 30 years or so, I've been doing clinical work uh, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania um, as a licensed psychologist. And um, working with um, all sorts of clients or patients in, in, in various ways. Uh, so that was the clinical work. I actually had started that practice because of career psychology, which I did with people um, because I come out of a background of working in the um, organizational field, organizational psychology. Um, and so I built the practice that way, but I found that a lot of people who had career problems had other problems as well, such as anxiety and depression, as well as um, issues like personality disorders and other, other problems. So, um, so before I was in full-time clinical practice, I, for several years, I was at the Pittsburgh Cancer Institute, 
where I led a group of, um, well, psychologists on one side who worked with cancer patients and their families, and then researcher, research assistants who worked with the connections between um, psychological factors and the immune system. And um, that was uh, very interesting. And then prior to that, I actually worked for a couple of uh, outplacement firms. And what outplacement is, is um, working with executives a lot of the time who were laid off and displaced, but also really anybody from executives down to you know, regular line workers and uh, who were looking for new jobs because they'd been displaced for either being fired or laid off or displaced or whatever. Um, the, um, um, and prior to that, I was uh, an industrial organizational psychologist, which I did with a bank in Pittsburgh, specifically Mellon Bank, where I started off what was actually often usually called industrial organizational psychology. We called it human resources research and analysis, mm -hmm. um, where we looked into human resource issues and, um, and uh, studied them, as well as doing things like attitude surveys and selection testing and succession planning and various programs like that. Wow. Um, I got my PhD at the University of Pittsburgh and the School of Education. Um, I specialized in things like testing and measurement. Um, and uh, I also got a master's degree in counseling psychology at the University of Pittsburgh. Um, prior to that, I was uh, actually a retailer and a buyer in a department store um, in Pittsburgh during my 20s for a period of time. Wow. And uh, so, so those were the, uh, some of the highlights. I was in, you know, the business world and retailing and then banking. And then I was in the clinical world and career and clinical psychology. Right. Wow. What a wide breadth. I mean, I don't know very many people that have had such a wide range of human experiences in different systems, you know? Did you start to see um, a relationship between the different sectors of our society, between banks and retail and healthcare and education. I mean, there's so many, I mean, it doesn't matter what domain you are in. I don't think there's a common pattern with humans. What do you think? No, that would, there's definitely, I mean, um, let's take employment, for example. Um, people in banking have the same issues with employment um, problems as they do in retailing or in, uh, or in an academic situation, um, people bring themselves to the uh, to the job, uh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, so it's uh, there's a lot of different uh, dynamics. Um, yeah, I mean, of course, there are some things that transcend all settings: right, things like exactly. anxiety, depression, personality, personality disorders, etc. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So when I hear you speak, I mean, there's, we could do several conversations with you because just on the, what you know about people and then career, helping people find the best career for them. What were some of the things that you noticed? Cause I know there's a lot of young people uh, that we're attracting to our network that want to learn, like, how do we find a best career? Well, I don't think there is such a thing as the best career you find you know, you, you bring yourself to the career search and you follow things that are your interests. Um, there's what I found though in that across a lot of different people was that 
most people did not plan their career. I mean, there were some people, you know, who when they were eight years old knew they wanted to be a doctor, for example. Mm -hmm. But um, but those are the in the minority. Um, most people, you know, pick a uh, major in college. They follow that. They get a job after college. That job leads to another job. That job leads to another job, et cetera. And uh, so people very often, it's not as though they don't have a part in their the selection of careers, but they certainly, because um, they certainly do, but right. uh, but uh, people don't find, uh, you know, people don't have this planned out career that they, um, that it looks like in retrospect, right. and, you know, biographies or something like right. that, like somebody yeah. planned it. Right. Yeah. Well, that's one of the issues. We, I, I don't know for sure. I haven't done a double-blind, placebo-controlled, independent clinical study on this, but I have a sense that if people could bring who they are yeah. to what they do and then start to study and learn with people who have done that, could support them in unfolding that genius that they want to bring forward instead of looking out there for some solution. There's some connection, I would think, between who a person is and their identity and what their gifts are and then how they can be a, a contribution to other people. Oh, totally. Does, yeah. that, does that help eliminate anxiety when people can be more, let's say, authentic in their choices because they know who they are on the inside? Oh, yeah. I, and, and there are some people who get into, quote unquote, the wrong career because they don't really know their own needs and their own talents and, and personality attributes, for example. Exactly. But, uh, but, uh, um, but by and large, people do follow their interests into various things. So right. that what they go into as a career is not, um, is not just random. <laughs> right, right. There's a relationship to it, but it's kind of like the discovery. I, I keep thinking it's an inside out process. And um, just a little disclosure, you know, I think therapy is good for people. <laughs> So you have 30 years of um, clinical practice, you know, oh, yeah. and, and uh, is there, if you were, I, I feel like with all your background, there's a book coming through now that you're in retirement, it's almost like, <laughs> hmm, we could probably do a series uh, with you that could turn into a book if you don't have a plan to write a book. But I'm just curious, um, is there any one specific uh, place that you would say, now that I'm retired, I'd like to bring this forward in more gusto or revisit something? I mean, what do you think now that you can do whatever you want with your time? I mean, you've been in your own business for a long time too, but now it seems like with retirement, I call it refirement, you have an opportunity to um, maybe leverage what you've learned over the years. Is there a place that you think you want to explore further as a result? Well, actually I'm exploring that right now. And, and I'm sure there will be some crossover between the world of psychology and things that I'm interested in doing. Um, the uh, one of my interests right now is actually um, uh, climate restoration, which is not doesn't sound mm. like it's really related to psychology, but I think in some ways. It oh, is. yes, totally. It is. Right. <laughs> yeah. We're, our youth and, and James will probably have some questions about that because we've been talking about that in our youth advisor group and how what's the relationship between, you know, how people relate to themselves, to each other, and to the planet. There is right. a connection, right? Well, so, by and large, people don't like change. You know, change is oh. uncomfortable for people. Um, oh. It brings up anxiety and it brings up uh, insecurities. Uh, yeah. 
So when we say that, you know, I mean, on one hand, we want to replace fossil fuels with um, replenishable fuels like wind mm -hmm. and solar and things mm -hmm. like that. Um, but to do that requires change, like changing from the internal combustion engine or various types of internal right. combustion engines right. to electric cars, for example. Right. And then people say, well, I, I, how am I going to uh, fill up with an electric car? You know, that's a change. <laughs> So yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, big change. Yeah. yeah. And so I'm just curious, just saying, do you think we call ourselves in our community the change makers? So, you know, <laughs> we're like welcoming people and go, yeah, change might be uncomfortable. And mm -hmm. what do they say? If, if you if you fight change, you're going to hate extinction. You know what I mean? It's like we are all changing whether we recognize it or not. So Hopefully we're not becoming we won't become extinct. Exactly. I think the earth will continue just fine without us, but let's see if we can figure out. And this is not something to make light of. This is a right. very serious topic, and I'm so glad you brought it up. We have a lot of interest of that um, climate restoration in our community. Yeah. So, so, yeah. so anyhow, that's, that's, you know, one of the things people, people totally are very reluctant to change, um, and it creates anxiety. But, uh, um, you know, there's a uh, well, let's not go into climate restoration right now, but let's, uh, I wonder if James has any yeah, questions. Exactly. Well, let's bridge over to James Schmidt because um, James is quite in a unique being. He, um, I'd say, thinks outside of the box. I mean, he might even mm -hmm. say, what box? <laughs> <laughs> and um, he's a founding member of the Youth Advisory Council for Living the Potential Network and is coming to us from Salem, Oregon. So welcome, James. Good to have you here. Hey, James. Great to be here. Uh, thank you for having me. Yeah. Tell us, tell our listeners a little bit about you. What have you been up to and um, what was it that brought you to want to connect with Lathe on this uh, podcast? So uh, I'm uh, 20 years old. I'm currently, I've uh, currently finished uh, my second year of college. Um, currently on my uh, summer break, break before uh, I head into a small summer term. Yeah. Um, and one of the things, and um, I'd say the reason why I wanted to connect with Lace is that I was really interested in seeing what a psychology was like from the perspective of somebody who had already been in the field and who are, mm -hmm. had already had a lot of experience in the field. So I wasn't trying to um, see, so I wasn't trying to like look through a bunch of like advertising <laughs> that may or may not be super accurate and um, the things that people don't necessarily think to write down because they don't because it's not something that's immediately relevant when you first go into the field mm -hmm. but it's relevant um a year or two after yeah so there's uh, a number of ways that people get into the field of psychology um you know many people are uh, psychology majors in undergraduate school. Um, some people actually go into various fields in psychology with their undergraduate degree. But more often than not, people who are in um, 
like therapists of one kind or another um, need at least a master's degree or a PhD to practice. Um, but there's different schools to go into for that. Um, for example, um, you know, I mentioned that I graduated from a school of education. I started out with counseling psychology, but then I got very interested into the research side and uh, studied, you know, testing and measurement of research psychology, statistics, um, uh, research design, et cetera. And um, lo and behold, this is an example of how some things present themselves. And, you know, if you say, aha, I'll take it. I, so I was uh, actually, one of the things I was doing in graduate school was consulting to people on their dissertations um, and the research design and statistics on their dissertation. And one of my clients in that regard actually um, had a boyfriend who was working for Mellon Bank in Pittsburgh, who um, um, had noticed a, an ad for somebody who knows statistics and, and testing and things like that. So I, I never actually saw the ad, but I applied for that job and lo and behold, got it. And I went into Mellon Bank and developed an organization, industrial organizational psychology unit in the human resources department of the bank. Um, and that's just an example of how um, jobs don't necessarily come out of directly out of schooling, although schooling was useful in doing that. Um, and we developed that um, section and we consulted to senior management of the corporation usually, you know, department heads and above up to the CEO. And uh, as I said, we did testing and measurement and survey, attitude surveys, and we used statistics to, to analyze various um, uh, human resources, things like performance and uh, um, succession planning and things like that, other, other parts of human resources. And that's actually turned into quite a field now as far as uh, psychology is concerned, industrial organizational psychology is a whole separate field in and of itself. Um, when I got out of Mellon, I decided to, uh, I was in, I was working for a outplacement firm that did um, consulting with people who were laid off and displaced. And uh, that's another separate field. It's sometimes called career counseling, but it really is more clinical than you think because a lot of people with you know, uh, career problems have anxiety or depression issues or, or even personality disorders. Um, so in any case, let me go back to um, what we were saying about different ways of getting into psychology after a, uh, after a bachelor's degree. Um, one is a school of education. Um, another is the traditional uh, schools of psychology in universities. Uh, although when in that case, you have to really look at are the uh, psychology programs offering the kind of psychology you might be interested in doing. For instance, if you're interested in doing counseling or clinical psychology, because a lot of psychology departments do just research. And, uh, um, you know, that may be your interest, which is great. But, uh, you know, you want to know that ahead of time. Um, there are also master degree programs in some uh, universities in counseling psychology. Those can be in the School of Education or in the School of Psychology or um, 
you know, and there's also social work programs. Um, social work is a is a field of therapy where a master's degree is typically the uh, terminal degree, and people can become licensed clinical social workers, and uh, you know, work for uh, work with patients or clients, and uh, you know, get third party reimbursement from like healthcare companies and things like that. As can licensed psychologists also. Yeah. Um, the, so I think James, James, he had a question though. I wanted to say, just hold on. Cause I know there's a lot of knowledge um, here. Yeah. yeah James, it, you, uh, I appreciate your input. I hadn't realized um, that so many other disciplines also needed uh, psychology. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it's one thing to think about like, oh, you know, there are other places that psychology could be applied, but it's nice to hear like specific examples of places where psychology can be applied. Oh yeah, I've, I've found um, in addition to what I was just talking about, like schools of psych, schools of education and schools of social work, that uh, um, I've, I've known people who went into psychology from nursing. You know, usually they were like uh, nursing, mental health nurses in the inpatient nurse, you know, um, psychiatric hospitals. But uh, but there's a lot of different ways into the field, actually. Right. We were talking earlier um, about what's happened since the pandemic. And Leith mm -hmm. was saying that all of his colleagues, all everybody is booked, you know, because of the mental uh, health issues that have become more um prevalent, I don't know if prevalent mm -hmm. is the right word, <laughs> um, more obvious, or people are recognizing the need for help now after, because of a result of the pandemic. So in terms of looking at, you know, a career path that society needs right now, right? Lace, right. you want to say right. a little bit about so, that? Yeah. Um, James, you know, the pandemic for some people has been very difficult. For other people, some people have handled it better than others, actually. But um, the isolation involved with this, with literally social isolation from the, pan from the pandemic has um, increased rates of depression and anxiety in a lot of people. And I know every clinician I know, in fact, every time I get somebody asking me if I can make a referral, I have to uh, add to that, that uh, everybody I know is full and is not, are not taking new referrals because of the, pand because of the pandemic. Um, and they, these can also exacerbate problems in things like relationships, um, sometimes career problems, um, um, as I mentioned, anxiety, depression, right. et cetera. I mean, they all kind of work together as far right. as a spiral that uh, right. can produce problems. So James, you, um, I think you briefly mentioned this to um, Laith about your interest in psychology and where it comes from in terms of your learning journey. Do you wanna reference that? Because you put forth an idea that I think Laith wants to comment on about a possible career path based on your own experience of learning and other people that could benefit from your experience. Do you wanna to speak to that at yeah. all? Um, I'd say, uh, the primary, um, the primary source for my interest in, uh, psychology actually stems from my autism. Um, mm -hmm. 
As you may already know, I was diagnosed with autism at an early age, and I had to uh, devote a lot of uh, time and energy to figuring out how people work, something mm -hmm. that uh, my parents also helped me a great deal with. And so in doing that, I came up with the idea of a translation matrix, which is what I call which is what I call the uh, collection of all of the things I've learned about uh, how people work. Mm -hmm. I think that's fascinating. Yeah. I and think that we all have been spending many years trying to figure out how people work. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so could you give us some examples, James? Because that also was like, you thought, well, what if you, what if that idea that helps you could be deepened in your studies and who else cares about that? Like other people who are dealing with autism or parents that are dealing with, um, you know, neurodivergent children, or, you know, there's, there's lots of pathways for you to be the expert because of your own life experience. So share a little bit about, you know, the, the translation matrix or however you'd like to express that because it's a, it could, you could be just like Lath was saying, that organizational um, psychology that he did for Mellon Bank, it was kind of like, it wasn't even a field yet, but he was an early adopter in that field and created something pretty amazing, right? So here you are with a unique idea that could be kind of an early adopter on a, on a need that our society is just now recognizing how important it is. So share a little more. Yeah, um, I think that uh, one of the things in my translation matrix, for example, is that when people ask you to vacuum the floor, uh, they generally mean uh, the floor should be about 80% clean, but the 20% remaining shouldn't be in one specific area, but rather dotted around in hard to, in hard to clean, um, but very unnoticeable um, spots around the floor. Mm -hmm. And see, that's much more detailed than most people, than most um, people who aren't autistic think of. But it's the level of detail that I need in mm -hmm. order to make sense of the request. And yeah. So, so, so I think it's you're little about, things like that. You're talking about if you were working with autistic people, then. Uh, you would have more of uh, insight into what they needed in the therapeutic uh, sessions. Is that correct? Exactly. That's mm. one thing I'm really excited for is that I think that a lot of autistic people will really appreciate um, having an autistic therapist mm -hmm. because that shared life experience will make communication and um, understanding a lot easier. Yeah, that's, uh, that is something which um, I'm trying to think of one of the fields of psychology, for example, addictions and alcoholism, um, alcohol and other drugs, addictions are, uh, a lot of people in the field of addictions are um, recovered or recovering addicts or alcoholics themselves. And, uh, you know, a lot of times there's a very 
good you know synergy between uh, patients or clients and the therapist because they feel that that person understands their problem. Yeah, totally. And James has already been called forth to speak to certain people about his experience. <laughs> that includes parents and um, facilitators of uh, youth that learn differently. Do mm -hmm. you want to speak about that? Because I think there's a connection here between starting something new that's never been done before Mm -hmm. that you could probably ask Laith about, well, how did you do that thing at in Mellon Bake, creating something that's never been done before? Because James, you're in that space now with helping people. Yeah. You've become an expert in so many ways of people going, what? Tell me you're autistic? I would never have guessed it. You're so well-spoken. Like, really? Yeah. Um, that's definitely... Um... It, it can be sometimes an issue to navigate uh, people's preconceptions about autistic people. Right. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask you is um, how in uh, doing these new ventures and such, how did you uh, deal with and counter the sentiment um, that your changes were felt as unnecessary and how did you um cope with or how did you um operate besides this excuse me operate despite the fact that a lot of people were resistant to your changes um actually i didn't find that people were resistant to my changes um i found in general that uh, there were a lot of transferable skills um, that, you know, really overlapped. Yeah. So, um, I mean, you know, one of the ways of actually, I think challenging yourself in a career is taking the opportunity or saying yes to opportunities that present themselves, even if you think, oh my gosh, this, this is going to be impossible. Now you don't want to set yourself up for failure. So I'm not saying that, you know, you should take wild changes, but, um, you know, the transferable skills that you bring to a job are, you know, I'll give you an example. When I was working for Mellon Bank, I was doing internal consulting to levels of management that, uh, you know, higher levels of management on how to run the human resources of the organization. Um, so when I went to work for an outplacement firm, many of the people working, you know, or who were clients of the outplacement firm were from you know, higher levels like CEOs or CFOs or CIOs or you know, call it C-level to department heads or, or whatever. And um, so it was, it was not much for me to change, you know, to continue to consult except for internally to be an external consultant with the higher levels of people in organizations. Those are the, that's an example of transferable skills. Um, one of the another example of transferable skills that has more to do with content was just the ability to make sense of and design research in a way that uh, you're answering the question that you want to answer and you're doing it in a um, in a methodologically sound way. So uh, so that's trans it was transferable across various parts of uh, my, my career. 
I see. And so uh, just to make sure that um, I'm understanding you correctly, by transferable skill, you mean mm -hmm. a skill that is useful in a lot of different uh, fields. Oh, yeah. Well, or this transferable from one field to another. Yeah. I see. I see. So when I went into industrial organizational psych, really having not been trained in industrial organizational psych, I did bring with me, you know, skills in computer skills, um, um, statistical skills, um, you know, being able to pull out from people what the questions are and, and really refine them to be able to design the research in such a way that we were, you know, having a, a valid research, you know, study. That makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. Because it's really uh, important yeah. to uh, make sure you're doing good science. Something oh, I'm probably. passionate well, about. Yeah, yeah. And, and actually, one of the things that you find is that oftentimes research is not designed in a methodologically sound way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then, then errors are made on judgments, on decisions. And so doing the research, you know, when you were saying that, I was thinking about you, James, because you really like. You like research, don't you, James? It's part of your your part of your skill set that you love research and you know the opportunity to apply that love of research towards your passion of helping people understand autism and and how to manage and have a have a life that works. You know, it's really powerful. There's yeah. probably a lot to be said there. I don't know, in terms of combining that research with some sort of um, counseling or therapy for people that are yeah. challenged. And um, one of the things is that I am also looking forward to uh, doing some research um, and some statistical analysis as well. Okay. Good. Well, while I'm primarily going into psychology for uh, clinical work, Mm -hmm. I'm probably going to be doing um, other types of uh, work as well, such as research. What do you think, uh, what kind, besides uh, people with autism, what, uh, um, what else draws you to the psycho psychological field? I find I'm, I find I have a strong sense of empathy. Mm -hmm. um, and... I really enjoy helping people. That's something that really feeds my soul. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I think it's something that the world needs a lot of nowadays. Mm -hmm. um, and um, as far as you know, money goes, the pay is um, very, th the um, pay is enough to ensure that I'm uh, financially stable. You know, mm -hmm. while I don't want to be rich, I definitely want to be financially stable. You don't want to be rich, but you don't want to be poor. <laughs> well, well, I want to uh, make sure that I can uh, pay all of my bills. Yeah. Um, and I find that... Um, I have a lot of emotional strengths in that sense, mm -hmm. in that I can uh, take a lot of this, um, 
a lot of these people's frustrations and um, pain and not have it and uh, keep going through that and mm -hmm. to help these people through their issues. Right. Yeah, so um, empathy and uh, caring about people is definitely one of the, you know, keynotes of most people who are in the field. Right. And um, the, um, and also what you said is, you know, being able to work with people empathetically, but also not get too emotionally involved that you get burned out. Yeah. Now, one of the things that, uh, people often do when they're starting their career uh, with a master's or a PhD is they often go to a uh, work in um, MHMR facilities, you know, either state or, or local or sometimes federally funded programs that are working with various populations of people. Um, what does MHMR stand for? Sorry, that stands for mental health, mental retardation. Um, I think more community mental health is what it is. Yeah. In fact, MHMR is probably an outdated term right now. So that's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. politically speaking. Yeah. You know, changes, changes. We're always changing, you know, right. it always changes. Right. Especially in an act in acronyms. Right. right. But, you know, James, I was thinking about um, since uh, Leif brought up transferable skills, one of the transferable skills you learn from your theater work where you learned about play, you know, when you described your theater work and how it helped prepare you for your relationships with people is pretty significant. And I'm just wondering if you want to speak to that because it's a transferable skill that you can apply to your field that you're, you're creating for yourself, whether it's a counselor for autism or psychology or whatever, but the theater work has helped you in many ways. Do you want to speak to that at all? Definitely. Um, I'd say that uh, theater helped a lot in figuring out how people work mm -hmm. with uh, the character studies and character analyses uh, we do in theater. And it let me, you know, figure out people's psychology and why they did the things they did. Mm -hmm. And the uh, acting skills, um, the sort of kind of awareness you have of your own body language when you're acting helps a lot with uh, regulating my autism uh, in everyday life mm -hmm. um, for from uh, maintaining a uh, professional stance in professional settings to also um, unfortunately uh, hiding my autism in places where it would not be safe to um, be known as autistic. Okay, so, and, so what you're talking about is actually personas that, uh, you know, when, for example, you are, let's say you're in a clinical or a counseling setting, you're going to have a professional counseling or clinical persona. You're going to be working with people using that persona. Um, the different personas that you have, that's different than when you're hanging out on a Friday night with your friends. Exactly. Yeah. And it doesn't mean you're being phony. It just means that you're doing being appropriate to the setting. That uh, 
there's, um, you know, for example, if you were going to a fancy, let's say a wedding, you know, we'll say a black tie wedding, you'd wear a tux. Um, aren't many of those around anymore. But uh, <laughs> the, uh, but that doesn't mean you're being phony, but just because you'd prefer to wear jeans, you're just being appropriate to the situation. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So James has really learned about that in so many different ways. Um, I'm just curious about, we talked a little bit about um, labels in, in, mm -hmm. our, in our preparation. Remember, um, there's some people that we know in our circles, James, because of your um, expression of, of uh, neurodivergent learning, many have come to you and said, you know what, I think I wanna be tested because I might have I might be neurodivergent and not know it and I'm struggling. And you said, you know, when you found out that you had that um, neurodivergent, um, that you had relief about that, but then you had issues about labels. Do you want to speak to that a little bit? Because that tied to what Laith was saying about a story about people being labeled in school. And I'd love for him to tell that story. But first you speak about the labels and how you yeah. felt when you, when you got the diagnosis and then how you feel about labels. Absolutely. Um, I've always um, known I'm autistic. Uh, my parents uh, told me that at an early age, as well as uh, the fact that I have um, ADD, um, which uh, might have been folded into ADHD uh, mm -hmm. nowadays. And knowing and knowing that that's the reason for the way, for several of the ways my mind works mm -hmm. has been immensely freeing and uh, refreshing mm -hmm. because I don't have to, because I can understand that um, I'm having these struggles, the uh, certain struggles that I'm having because I'm autistic or because I have ADHD, not mm -hmm. because I'm an idiot or because I'm lazy or what have you. And I find that a lot of people focus on the negative aspects of labels. And there's certainly some truth to that, you know, mm -hmm. when labels are applied um, with when labels are applied to limit people or, you know, applied by an external authority as a way to like devalue someone or say that they're not, they're not worth much. But I find that there's a lot of positive uses for labels as well. Mm -hmm. You know, um, when uh, I go online, um, and see, you know, online um, records of people talking about their experiences with being late diagnosed, it's often very frustrating for them because they went their whole lives not knowing that they were just, that they just had ADHD or they just had autism. Right. And so they've been struggling whilst thinking that they're just lazy. Right. And um, I recently uh, had a podcast episode um, called, I recently had a 
participated in an episode for the podcast called Let's Just Talk, which mm-hmm. is something um, that was uh, created by another Youth Advisory Council member, uh, Samuel Osborne Huertes. And he mentioned uh, his struggles as well with not knowing that this was, that all of the, that several of the things he did were autism things. And mm-hmm. he thought that was just some weird thing he did, but he didn't know that a lot of other people have, you know, the same struggles and the same uh, characteristics. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think that having a label can be very um, freeing for a lot of people. It can be stressful for some people too, but uh, um I'm thinking of a person who I know who actually went to a very uh, prestigious Ivy League college and was diagnosed with autism after she had graduated. She graduated, you know, very high in her class, but uh, she was, uh, she had always had some difficulty with some social issues. And so having the diagnosis actually gave her a sense of relief to know that they're that to put a label on it and also to have some ideas now that it's labeled of what she of what she can do and uh, so it's it's a very important part you know lee i would love i was sharing a story about having been a former english teacher in ohio and i had 180 students and four different preps and three different categories of students and the way they labeled them back then were the normal kids, the advanced kids, and the adjusted kids. Yeah. I had all three groups. And the adjusted ones were labeled that way because they didn't appear to be motivated. They um, you know, uh, were looking to drop out of school. You know, they weren't playing the game, so to speak, mm-hmm. you know? Right. Um, but I saw the uniqueness of every group and try to meet them where they were, where they could be themselves, because I knew that mm-hmm. they were enough. And that kind of I thought, you know what, they would be so cool because sometimes there's trauma that comes from, you know, uh, education systems that um, haven't yet changed to the degree that they need to <laughs> in the 21st century. So I'm wondering that triggered a story I think you told um, Laith about um, a conversation about. Oh, this was a story. Yeah, I'll, I can repeat it. Uh, this yeah. was a story that uh, I'd heard in uh, in graduate school, and it had to do with a teacher who had gone into the principal's office, and uh, the uh, the principal and she were talking, and uh, it was before the school year, and the principal was called out. So while she was out of the room, the teacher said to her or started looking on her desk, the principal's desk. And while she was looking on the principal's desk, she started to see various numbers next to the names of students. And there were things like 125, 132, 135, 130, 128. And um, so she got her classroom and she went to the classroom, you know, Obviously, I got it. I went through the school year, and at the school at the end of the school year, she was talking to the, the principal, and she said to her, um, "I just want to thank you for uh, for giving me a really good class this year." And uh, 
and the principal said to her, um, what do you mean a really good class? And she said, well, my class was just superb. And I know you probably designed it that way. And uh, uh, so I wanna thank you for that. And the, the principal said again, what do you mean I designed it like that? And the teacher said, uh, well, I looked on your, I, I have to admit that I looked on your list of students when you were out of the room and we were talking at the beginning of the year. And I saw these numbers, 130, 132, 138, 129. And I just assumed they were their Intel IQ scores. <laughs> and so I taught to a higher level. And the, uh, um, the principal said, oh no. She pulled out the list and she said, no, no, that's their locker numbers. <laughs> right. But it drives home the point, you know, it's like when you're in an environment and people are seen without the label. Yeah. How important it is. Another point too, which is if, uh, if a teacher is teaching to, is, is presuming a student or a group of students to be bright, you know, she or he is going to um, actually create the space for those people to be bright. And so it, become, it can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So that's beautiful. I'm just curious. Um, I think you had a, another question, uh, James. Uh, I think we have room for one more before we move to our close. Uh, yes, I just wanted to ask you, um, what's the most unexpected difficulty you've ever had in, working in the field? Okay, well, um, actually, there are a lot. Uh, I don't think you can be totally prepared in any field, frankly. I mean, and actually in any field that you're in, in this case, the career stuff, if you know 75% of the job, then you have 25% to grow. So in any job, you don't want to go in knowing 95% about the job to begin with. But in the clinical field, every person is different when they come in. And... Um, my first uh, internship, for example, was uh, at an alcoholism clinic, and that was back when they separated alcoholism from drug addiction. And uh, the, um, uh, so I learned a lot from that because I was starting with a pretty blank slate. But when I went into clinical psychology, um, having an actual um, patient who was, had been very severely abused as a child, um, to the point of physical abuse, including things like brain damage. Um, I can think of a specific person for whom I actually went to a training, a 30 hour training that uh, was designed to work with people who were, um, you know, emotionally, physically, or sexually abused. And, um, um, so that's, uh, you know, and, and working with people like that, you know, you're, 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 you're looking at how to make somebody, because oftentimes somebody is fairly dysfunctional in that situation, but you're working with them um, to help them get the uh, abilities to function in the world in ways that uh, their abuse has actually prevented them from. Wow. There's a, there's a lot of, um, I mean, every, every case is, is a new case, but uh, uh, as part of the, actually, the uh, 
of why I love the field. Every day is a new day, right? Every day is a new day. That's right. <clears throat> That's awesome. Well, I want to thank both of you. This has been a, an amazing, insightful conversation. And um, I'm just curious, Leif, um, is there anything that occurred for you today that was like leaves you inspired as a result of our conversation? Uh, I think James's idea of people with autism working with people with autism is a terrific idea. And uh, um, I would actually, I, I'm surprised it's actually not, there, there's, I, I would wonder if it's, if it's happening out there already. And if so, if that's something you could, you might wanna even get in, you know, plug into, but uh, it's clearly, I think a, a very positive uh, thing to think about. Perfect. And yeah. James, how about you? Um, I'm sure you've got some insights that are leaving you inspired. Anything you'd like to share? Some takeaways for you? Yeah, um, I just like to say I didn't realize how many um, transferable skills there was in psychology and how many different places you can work with a mm -hmm. master's or PhD in psychology. Oh, yeah. Which, which yeah. makes me feel um, more, which makes me feel uh, very secure about uh, heading into psychology. Well, good, good. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I'm inspired by both of you. And I would just say <laughs> that the concept of transferable skills and the way in which that's been discussed today <clears throat> um, is really honoring the cross-pollination part. Mm -hmm. Like, because when you bring all of who you are to what you do and your contribution, James, and your background in theater and your background, and um, I think you did a specific type of theater that you called uh, conversational theater. What was that? Ah, verbatim theater. Verbatim um, theater. It's where, where you, you use um, people's, where you interview people and then use uh, their exact words as the lines in the script. Exactly. So all of that in your fun part of theater and so forth and as a transferable skill towards your empathy and your approach to helping uh, people. And then maybe even looking at a specialty ahead of time, because if this career path is coming in as a seed of possibility about autism and what you wanna do with it, let's find the people who are interested in learning and growing together. You could be one of those early adopters, just like Laith was with industrial psychology. He went into that and he didn't really, he wasn't schooled well, I'm, in it, I'm but also he, thinking he figured about, it out, right? Yeah, I'm also thinking about when I was in graduate school of, you know, 45 years ago, that uh, um, art therapy was out there, for example, but it wasn't necessarily, you know, a major field. And it's over the years, it has developed into that. And music therapy too. And you could be the founder of... Uh, of theater therapy. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> I believe uh, there's uh, some people who use theater therapy already oh. present as well. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm sure there, I hope there is. Yeah. Right. So mm -hmm. this has been so inspiring because the opportunity, I feel like there's a mentor-mentee relationship that's just budding here. <clears throat> and the opportunity, James, is that you're already on track for you know, tying in your you know, translation matrix and so many things that you've been building along the way. 
And for those of you that have been listening today, I, I hope you're leaving us inspired and that you would tell friends about this, living the potential and how we are doing reciprocal learning. So I wanna thank all of our listeners for tuning in today. And again, I wanna thank Leigh Paines um, for your contributions today and James Schmidt. And uh, look forward to more conversations exactly like this. The world needs more uh, heart-centered conversations. Thank you so much. Thank you, Renee. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did and will join us for the next Bridging the Potential podcast. Please subscribe to have us on your podcast feed and feel free to share it with your friends. If you are interested in what we are doing here at Living the Potential Network, please visit our website www.livingthepotential.com and check out the first two chapters of Renee Best's book, Living the Potential, Engaging the Wisdom of Our Use to Save the World. Till next time.